Tonight is the last in the series of life matters, and particularly money matters issue, and we're gonna, I want to talk about uh, a topic that is often a source of controversy, and that's the issue of tithing. More specifically, is it mandatory? Is it mandatory? Does the Bible, does the Bible teach me that I have to tithe? Um, I find a lot of people are interested in that question. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father God, I ask as we uh, look to your word tonight that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, our guide, uh, Lord, that you would not only help us to process uh, information, Lord, but uh, that we would also have hearts that could absorb it in a way that it becomes living reality. We all have this fear, Lord, that we be those people James warned about who, uh, you know, speak of their faith, but they are only hearing it, they're not actually doing it. And God, we want to be those who are consistent as best we can be to live out our faith on a daily basis. So pray for your wisdom, Lord, and we trust that you'll give it to us because you said if we ask, you will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the question is often posed, is tithing only an Old Testament concept or is it something that New Testament believers are supposed to do as well? Uh, and What's really interesting to me is the way that that often is asked kind of reveals that um, there's an oversimplification. It's more complicated than that. And uh, in fact, the real question that people want to know is, is tithing a compulsory obligation on uh, believers or is it something that is voluntary? And my answer is yes and no. So I, I, I hope that's not too ambiguous, but it is both those things. But let me explain why I say that. First of all, uh, historically speaking, tithing has really existed in three different contexts. So if we look at it, first of all, it began as a concept, and that's the best way I can express it. And what I mean by a concept is that a concept is an abstract idea that basically it, it reveals that I have a general notion towards doing something. In other words, before the Mosaic Law, there was no command that we can find in Scripture, certainly, that says God says this is what you're supposed to do. That's why it was a concept, but it changed and became a command when God gave Moses the law. And part of the Mosaic Law was a very clean, clear commandment about tithing, and we'll go into that a little bit further. But what a command is, is basically an authoritative order. It's not optional, it is mandatory. This is something that you had to do. And for Israel, tithing was mandatory, and a failure to do so had some pretty severe consequences. But then we come to the New Testament, and I would say that it's not just a concept anymore, nor is it a command, but rather it's a commitment. And it's a personal commitment. Uh, in other words, a commitment means that you make a decision to behave in a certain way. And I want to begin with that kind of that broad outline, and we'll try to work through each of those three in an orderly way so that hopefully you'll have conceptually a clearer idea of the way that not only tithing functioned in Old Testament times, but how at least I think from Scripture it's supposed to function in a New Testament concept. So, beginning with the idea, was it, it begins as a concept. Giving started, obviously, with God. God is the ultimate and the original giver. And the reason why I start with some obvious statement like that is because many times when we talk about giving, we get the idea that giving is always directly proportionate or relationship, relational to getting. In other words, I'm going to give to God so that I can get something back. But we have to understand that you have nothing that God needs. And I wouldn't say that you don't have anything that God wants because there are things that God wants from you. He wants your love and your devotion and your obedience. He wants to be in fellowship with you. And I would even clarify to say when God wants your obedience, it's not because he's a control freak who can't handle you not doing what he wants you to do. Believe me, he can handle it easily. The point is, but he knows that there's a context in which we can know God. And there's a context in which we remove ourselves from that place of intimacy with him. In the same way with any relationship, if I simply decide that I'm not going to talk to my wife or someone else who I have a relationship with my wife, that's a decision that I've terminated or caused a break in that relationship. And we can do the same thing with God. If it were not possible, then the whole concept of being in relationship with God would become meaningless. And so as a result, God has given us this thing, free will. 
But God didn't begin giving to us so that he could manipulate us into behaving a certain way. He was looking for a heart, first and foremost, of gratitude. And we'll come back to that in a few moments. But really, when we talk about giving to God or doing anything for God in form of worship, even being here tonight, it needs to begin with a heart of gratitude. Because, for example, in Romans chapter 1, when he talks about the moral decay of the world, one of the things he said is that they, had, they were no longer grateful for what God had done with them. They had not for what God had done for them, excuse me. They weren't grateful for what God had given us. He's given us life. The fact that I have a hundred thousand beats of my heart every day and that I function, the fact that I just don't simply drop dead or fall apart into billions of atomic particles uh, is the consequence of God giving to me this thing called life. And so the very living of my life is a response or should be a response of gratitude to saying, God, thank you that I am alive. Thank you that I have food on my table. Thank you that we have heat in this room tonight. Amen. Jesus, hallelujah. <laughs> uh, I had to call some of my friends in California just to impress them how cold it is up here so that they would think I am really serving God in a, in a difficult situation. But as I said, God was yearning for obedience and gratitude for what he had did, but what he got was disobedient. And so sin enters into human history, but even at that, God provides, God gives in response to that sin. And one of the very first things that God gives to mankind are fur coats. Uh, essentially, we know that Adam and Eve, because of their sin and their shame, decided to put together a, a you know, kind of a, uh, a, a, a fig on leaf ensemble that was not adequate, so God gave them coverings of animal skins. And it's, it's interesting because in order to get those animal skins, it's implied that certain animals had to die. And so most theologians believe that this was the beginning of animal sacrifice, blood offerings, animals being offered in atonement for man's sin and his behavior. Now, in many cultures even today, people believe that if they offer an animal as a sacrifice, that it represents actual atonement. And, but for Israel, that was never supposed to be the message. The message was really rather that we need to be atoned, and this was a prefigure of what Christ ultimately would do in becoming the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. One of the reasons that we don't teach that communion is a sacrament in the sense of being a sacrifice is because Jesus died once and for all. He shed his blood once, and it was sufficient to cover the sins of mankind forever. But shortly after that, we find, interestingly, that sacrifice became part of the response to God. When we read in chapter 4 of Genesis, for example, in, in verse 3, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, we understand, of course, in order to offer fat portions, the animal has to perish. And so as a consequence, there is a killing, a blood sacrifice, probably in imitation of what Adam and Eve saw God do when he provided covering. And of course, this is full of all sorts of symbols and metaphors because as he covered them with these skins uh, taken from animals that had been killed or sacrificed, he began to portray how one day we would be covered, our sins would be covered by the offering of Christ in his bloody sacrifice for our sins. But it's this idea of responding to God through sacrifice that we begin to see expressed through the entire Old Testament. Uh, even Noah, we find, when he disembarks from the ark, the first thing we read in chapter 8, in verse 20, is that Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings. Now, the phrase burnt offering is one that you get familiar with when you read through the Old Testament because it implies that the animal is completely consumed. Not all sacrifices were completely burned up, but this was a total dedication to God. And so when it talks about burnt offerings, it usually is referring to animal sacrifices. So the very first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark 
in gratitude for the fact that he and his family had been spared is he offers sacrifices to God. Even Job, now even though Job isn't in the first books of the Bible, it is probably the oldest book of the Bible in chronological order. And we find that Job, who was a contemporary of Abraham, uh, I don't know if they knew each other, if people are going to ask me that, but it's in that same time frame. But we read in in the opening of chapter 1, verse 5 of Job's uh, story, it says, early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering, and this was Job's regular custom. So here again, Job is this godly man, and he's coming and offering sacrifices to God as a way of expressing his worship, his gratitude, his thankfulness to God. And even when God uh, takes, come, brings him out of this great trial, the first thing that God instructs Job to do is he says in chapter 42, he said, so now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. Excuse me, he tells his friends who had sinned against Job that they needed to offer sacrifices as burnt offerings for, uh, on Job's behalf and also for, on their own behalf. So my point in, in going through that whole uh, you know, pedantic kind of coverage of this is the fact that the earliest expressions we see of responding to God in the Old Testament are, is not tithing, it's in sacrifice. It's giving up in, in, in replacement of my own sins and, and as a request of God to uh, forgive me for my sins. Now, 400 years after Abraham, or excuse me, after uh, Noah gets off the ark, we encounter the term tithing for the first time. And the word tithe, in its probably its most primitive etymology, as far as we can trace it back, literally means the top of the heap. In other words, you go out and pick a bushel of apples and you give God the top part or the best part. It didn't necessarily have a percentage attached to it. It was later on in Judaism that it took on a percentage, particularly when we get in the second temple period and they had moved away from a purely agrarian barter culture to a monetized culture. And so as a result, there was a determination. What does a tithe represent? And someone, some rabbi somewhere said, 10% sounds good to me. And this seems to be something that we find not only in reference to tithing in Judaism, but also in the culture's that are around them. The idea that a tithe would be paid to a king or to a priest or a temple, and it came to be uh, eventually referred to simply the giving of a 10%, the top 10% of whatever increase we had. So we find that the first time tithing is mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis 14. And it's interesting because we have Abraham going out and doing battle with the kings of Mesopotamia who had conquered the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and Zeboam and the rest, had taken Lot, his nephew, captive along with his family and all of their goods and was leading them back up into Mesopotamia up to the north where they probably would have ended their lives in slavery. And he pulls his his, his uh, family army together. We, you know, Abraham was a wealthy man. He had 318 armed men that were part of his community. That's pretty significant. And he travels up north, conquers these kings, brings the captives back, and it's at the city of Jerusalem that he is met by the king of Sodom, who is coming to, you know, to get back his people as well. But he's also met by someone by the name of Melchizedek, who is called a priest of the Most High God. And it reads this way. It says, Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which was referring to Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine, and he was priest of God Most High, El Elyon in the Hebrew. And he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then it says, Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything, or literally a tithe of everything that had been taken, had been uh, rescued, except for the people who were returned to their families. It's uh, interesting that the next time the word tithe ever shows up is 200 years later, when we read about Abraham's grandson, a man by the name of Jacob, 
And he promises God as he is going up to Mesopotamia, fleeing from his brother Esau, whom he had defrauded. And he's heading up there, and God appears to him, and he tells God, he makes this promise, if you bring me back and prosper me, then I will give you a tenth of everything. I will give you a tenth of all the things that, uh, that I receive. Now, the question we need to ask ourselves at this point, I believe, is why were they doing this? Why did they do it? Because we need to realize that with God, the why is more important than the how or the what. That God is very concerned with why or he's concerned with motive. What is my motive for doing what I do? That's why the Bible always talks about where your heart is. And Jesus made the comment, where your heart is, there your treasure will follow as a consequence. So we need to ask that question. Why were they doing this? Why were they offering sacrifices? Why did they start offering tithes? At whichever point that began, we're not told. And there are three things that, that are brought out in the biblical text, in the Old Testament in particular. The first one is, as I said before, it's that gratitude or thankfulness. In 1 Chronicles 29, uh, David dedicates his entire fortune to the building of the temple. I mean, it's really quite an amazing moment. And then he invites the rest of the nobility, the wealthy and powerful, and the people as a whole to participate if they want. And it was a, it's the kind of thing that pastors like myself dream about. They gave so much money, he had to tell them to stop giving. I, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so he says, but he says this about the Lord. He says, everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. All this abundance that we have, it comes from your hand. All of it belongs to you. He establishes the principle behind which gratitude operates. That everything I have is not mine and it didn't come by my own hand. This is where I find that giving really begins to kind of collide with our culture and maybe most cultures. Because I know at least in our culture, it's the one I know best because I happen to be part of it, that we like to think that we're the ones who make it happen. And yet God is very clear in his word that, no, I bless you that's why you're blessed. It's not simply a consequence of you worked hard and you made it happen. But because as Paul said to the Corinthians regarding evangelism, he says, you know, one can, we can plant the seed, which we're instructed to in the parable of the sower, to plant the seed of God's word. But God is the one who waters it and makes it grow. God is the one who gives life to what we plant. And so it's similar to when you plant a garden in your yard or a plant in your yard. You know that you put this seed in the ground. And if it sprouts, especially if it's me planting it, if life comes out of it, I know this is God because I have a black thumb. And so, you know, it's a, it's a miracle in a sense and a point of wonderment. When we talk about, well, the germ, you know, gestates and breaks apart and then it grows up. But it's still this mystery. How is life? held in something that looks immaterial and inanimate? Well, we still don't know. It's much like looking in the needle, neonatal research where they go and look at the, the fertilization of an egg inside its mother's womb. And in that moment, there's this explosion of life and it's marvelous and wonderful, but what causes it to happen? What is that spark of life? Well, the Bible says that's God. God gives life. And we need to understand that that, doesn't just, that isn't limited to the, the babe in the womb. It isn't limited to the seed in the garden. It's true of everything in our life. That everything that we have that is good and pleasurable is an expression of God's goodness. He has made that to live. So the fact that we're enjoying warmth, the fact that we enjoy these facilities, the fact that we just have friends and family and all the other things that we have are the gifts of God. And so giving always begins with this attitude of gratitude. God, thank you for what I have. And that's why we say grace at our meal. That's why we pray. And I remember when, the day that this became not just a, uh, something that I taught, but came a, a concept, concept that exploded in my own brain. And I realized that, that quite literally, I was eating my Cheerios at breakfast one morning, and I suddenly realized there's no promise or requirement for God to give me these Cheerios. <laughs> this is a gift. And I found myself stopping mid-chew and saying, Lord, thank you. <laughs> thank you for this. 
And ever since then, it's been just part of my life. It's, I, I say grace over my food, not because I think it's a ritual obligation, but I do it because I realize that there's no obligation on God's part to put that food on my plate. There's no obligation for God to do what he does for me. These are his kindnesses. So even in my own personal prayer life, I always begin with thanksgiving. I always begin by saying, God, thank you for, and I go through a list of all sorts of things. And even as you begin to mature, you start finding yourself thanking him for the things that you used to plead with him not to let to happen. Because God, I thank you even for the things that break my heart. Because when things break your heart, they, take you, they bring you closer to God. I came up with a phrase a while back, some of you have heard it, but I, used to, I just simply found myself saying one day, whatever hurts me actually helps me. Whatever humbles me actually brings healing into my life. And so when you begin to understand this concept that these are things that God is constantly giving into your life, that's when growth begins to take place because you start entering into relationship with God, I believe, at the proper place. Most of us wonder why our prayer lives aren't more fulfilling and more powerful because we begin our prayers with grumblings and complainings. <laughs> We're going, God, why did you let this happen? This isn't fair. And how come you? And you go on, you know, and you're, you're like uh, Peter, uh, James and John, you know, you're asking God to call down fire from heaven on people that have messed up your world and all this kind of stuff. And then we sit back and say, somehow I just don't feel like that had real traction behind it. Well, it didn't because we should always begin by saying, God, thank you. Thank you for even the things that hurt me because they will heal me. Thank you, God, for the things that humble me because they will end up helping me. So that because God makes a promise, he said that, that when we're humbled, he'll lift us up. So if you want to get lifted up by God, open yourself to being humbled. <laughs> it's, I know it's counterintuitive, but we're talking about not the kingdom of this world. We're talking about how the kingdom of God works. And so this attitude of gratitude is, is really key, I think, to any approach to God, anything that we do. Worship itself only means something if we're grateful to God. Singing a worship chorus is great if we are doing it with hearts that saying, God, I'm so grateful that I can even be doing this right now. But secondly, in our giving, we have the opportunity to honor God. In Proverbs 3.9, he says, honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of your crops. Now, what's the difference between gratitude and honor? Gratitude is me showing God my thankfulness, but honoring God is allowing other people to show, see how God has blessed me. I'm lifting him up, that I'm exalting him. Literally, the, the word in its original meaning means to make a distinction, distinguishing one from another, so that when I honor God by my gifts, I'm saying, God, I am lifting you up as distinct from everything else in my life. And then finally, I do it because I want the blessing. In Proverbs 3.10, he continues on by saying, if you do that, he says, then your barns will be filled with overflowing, your vats will brim over with new wine. In fact, in Malachi, he said to them, test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Now, keep in mind that blessing may be material, but not necessarily. Sometimes, God blesses us in ways that we had never anticipated. And it isn't always material. So there's a danger, I see, there's an imbalance that comes many times where we begin to view the blessing of God always in monetary or material terms. And quite honestly, he does that a lot. I mean, maybe even most of the time. But God's blessings is a covering of grace over your life that makes it good. And that's really more important than money or treasure or anything of that nature. So tithing in the Old Testament, first of all, when it's introduced, was something that was practiced voluntarily. And it was uh, almost a thousand years before it became something that was a legal requirement. Never once do we find before the Mosaic Law that anybody was commanded to do it, which is where we come into that second phase of tithing, the second context, when the Mosaic Law is given to Israel, what had been previously voluntary now becomes mandatory, that God is saying, this is something that you have to do. In fact, uh, 
it's how many times? Some six times in, in Leviticus and Numbers, Deuteronomy, three times in Deuteronomy, he says to him essentially, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. And it's, it's not only just holy, but he, as Paul went on to explain to the Corinthians, referring back to this Old Testament teaching, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, For it is written in the law of Moses, those who work in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. So that the support of the whole religious infrastructure of the nation, the temple, the, the priests, the Levitical uh, uh, families that served in alongside of the priests, all was based upon the tithes that were being given to the temple. And again, not paying the tithe in the old covenant was a serious offense with maybe even more serious consequences. For example, Malachi makes the statement in chapter 3. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. And But you ask, how do we rob you? He says, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse because you are robbing me. I mean, you think back, he says, there's a curse on you. Now we're not talking about you're, you're missing the blessing. You're not only missing the blessing, but you're bringing a curse down on your head, he said to them. And then later on, the prophet Haggai, when they had come back from the Babylonian captivity and began the process of rebuilding the temple, he, he, he speaks to them in their, in their frustration about their life. He said, you have planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. And then he adds, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. In fact, in Haggai, it, I think it's implied in, in his rebuke that they were taking the treasures, the, the gold and silver and materials that had been given to them by the king of Persia to help them rebuild the temple. And instead of doing that, they were actually taking those items and using them to build their own homes, which was understandable because everything was a ruin. But God says, here's a faith concept for you guys. If you'll dedicate yourself to what I, for the task that I sent you back to rebuild my house, then I will build your house. But if you commit yourself to the building of your house first, then not only will my house remain a ruin, but you'll find that the blessing of God won't be upon you. And I love the pictures that he draws here because I've, there's been times in my life I thought, that sounds like me. <laughs> you, you put your money in a bag and when you get home it's empty and go, where'd it go? Where? Yeah, there was holes in it. I, I eat, but I never get satisfied. I drink, but I never get filled. What's going on, God? Why is it that I just don't seem to be able to get my act together and God said, because you're not being obedient to me in regards to tithes and offerings. Now, sometimes people complain about it and say, well, 10% tithe, I mean, that's, are you serious? Um, it's significant because under the Mosaic law, the tithe wasn't 10%. Uh, it was a little bit more. 10% went to the priests. 10% went to the poor. And 10% went to the Levites. Let me see. 10% plus 10% plus 10% adds up to 5%, right? No. <laughs> no, 30%. I mean, it's estimated someplace between 25 and 30% of their income was what they were obligated to give. Uh, and it, it, it was significant. And yet, there's where the faith came in. God said, if you honor me in these things, then I will take care of you. And so what we had here in the covenant and in the commandment was a contractual agreement. So when you enter into a contract, you are obligated to fulfill your side of the contract. So when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the tablets of stone, he says, here's God's law. You heard him speak these laws audibly in your ears from, above, from out of the mountain, the fire, the smoke, the thunder, the lightning, all the rest. You heard it. Do you agree to become God's people? And they said, we agree. We're signing the contract. And this is, okay, see, here's the stipulations of the contract. Here's what you're agreeing to. And part of that agreement was that they would meet all of these obligations. 
so that they were violating a contractual agreement. Now, from a New Testament perspective, we say, well, why would God create this kind of relational dynamic? Because it was God's way of getting a snapshot, a portrayal of a whole number of things that he was going to fulfill through his son, Jesus. That's why the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, I have not come to destroy the law. Remember in Matthew chapter 5, he says, I haven't come to destroy the law, but he says, I have come to fulfill it. And that's an important part of it because he says, I'm not saying that the law is bad, but I'm coming to satisfy everything the law communicated. And you know what the law communicated? You're in debt to God. As the old song used to say, you owe a debt you cannot pay, but God's going to pay the debt that he does not owe. And again, what it is, God says, I'm setting up this whole indebtedness. I'm, I'm, I'm presenting you with the charge for all that I've done for you, what you owe me, and I know that you don't have the resources to pay me back. And when you cry out to me and say, God, we, we can't meet this, he says, I know, and that's why I provided my son, because you owed a debt you couldn't pay, but I paid your debt, which I didn't owe. And what it comes down to is, what is the relationship? Once again, it's God giving to us, not us giving to God. It's God giving to us. And it's not me repaying God. Anything I do in response to what God has given me has to begin with gratitude, with a desire to honor God in the face in, before other people, and to put myself in that place where if God so chooses that he can bless me. But it is not something that manipulates God or causes God to do something for me. Because, I mean, I, I've talked to so many people over the years, and they say, well, you know, I, I do, I've done this for God, and I've done that for God, and he hasn't kept his part of the bargain. And I just sit there and go, you know what? Now I know why your life's like this. It's not a bargain. You don't have anything to bargain with. You know, you've heard me say that. I mean, what I gave up so much when I came to Christ. Uh, you know, I was, I was young, I was stupid, I had no future, gave it all up for Jesus. How lucky he was to get me. You know, no. Anything that God does for me is gravy. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's gratuity. It's, it's beyond, above and beyond what I deserve. And so if God just simply let me go to heaven and made my life like Job's, I'd still be ahead. But to think that God, not only God gives me the gift of eternal life and on top of that blesses me with the things that he does, with the people in my life, with children, with grandchildren, with relationships, friendships, the fact that you know, we can be here together, all of this, this is all extra. There's nothing that I earn or you are I earn. There's nothing that's deserved or owed to us. This is a gift of God. And so when we approach God with that complaining heart, it reveals that we still don't understand that it's all His. It's all His. It was a gift. Well, so how does that bring us to where we are today? I mean, how does that carry over in our lives? Well, it's interesting because in the New Testament, tithing is mentioned three times. And all three times, it's Jesus who mentions it. And it's interesting because in Matthew 23, and again in Luke 11, and again in Luke 18, he simply talks about giving a tenth or giving a tithe, and then he, but he does it as a rebuke, not for tithing, but for the attitude behind it. And he says, you have... You have you've, you've said you've been faithful to give a tenth of everything. And he gives the illustration. I mean, he says, even the seeds from your herb garden in your window box, you're taking those seeds and you're counting them out one by one. I mean, I don't know, you've, most of you ladies know what an anise seed is and how small it is. And he uses that as one of the examples, anise and coriander. I mean, these are little, tiny, minuscule seeds. And he says, you're tithing them. And quite literally, according to the historians, that's what they did. I mean, they literally sat there and counted them out. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one for God. You know, now, only thing I'd assume is they had a lot of time on hands. They didn't have CNN, didn't have Fox News. You know, so I, I mean, I, I guess they just had time to do that. But you sit there and saying, you step back and saying, so that's what it means to know God? 
And what Jesus was trying to say is that's not, that's not knowing God. He says, in fact, tithing, if it's an expression of thankfulness, of gratitude towards God, produces things in our life. And he says, what you've overlooked are the weightier matters of the law. And he lists them, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Other gospels mention love. So he says the things that really matter to God is justice, is mercy, is faithfulness, is love, is forgiveness. Those are the things that that God's concerned about, but those things only come out of a grateful heart. They don't come out of a counting heart, a grumbling heart. You know, people who are counting aniseeds aren't concerned about justice. They aren't concerned about mercy. They aren't concerned about faithfulness. They're not concerned about love. No, it's people who are in awe of the wonder of God's forgiveness and grace who are the ones who manifest the same in response to God. So that Jesus condemns their lack of justice, their lack of love, but he doesn't condemn the tithing. In fact, he makes this statement, you should have practiced the latter, which is referring to tithing. You should have been tithing. He's telling these Pharisees, this is what you're supposed to do. He's not telling them, stop tithing. He says, no, you're supposed to do that, but your motive is all wrong. Remember I said at the beginning, God is very concerned about the whys behind what we do. And he says, the why in your life is completely wrong. Do you know what's really interesting? The Pharisees had a theology, not unlike one that's popular today, that you know that God loves you by how rich he makes you. The richer you are, the more you're loved by God. I had an Israeli friend of mine tell me he was talking with a well-known Christian uh, evangelist from the States here and, and, and uh, doing a tour with him. And, and the guy was showing him, he says, see this watch? And he was showing him his wristwatch. And he says, you know how much I paid for this watch? And he said, no. He says, I paid $100,000 for this watch. And he said, he said, Benny, I mean, he said, uh, why would you need a $100,000 watch? Israelis are amazingly practical about things, you know. Why would you, you know, because my $29.95 Seco is doing just as well, but keep better time. But the whole point, why do you need that? And he said, you don't understand. If Jesus were here today, this is the watch he'd be wearing. So you got to understand that there are people who really believe in down those veins, and I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm saying they're nuts. I mean, it's just... It's just like they've taken a leave from their, from their senses because it, it makes no sense. But I, I, won't, beray, you know, I won't harp on that any longer. <clears throat> um, but anyway, but that's why most of the scholars believe that at least in the Jerusalem church, the early church, that tithing was not something that was talked about because it was something that was understood. It was just a normal part of their life, a normal part of their culture. In fact, one commentator put it this well. He says, as the church grew out of a Jewish culture, tithing simply is a carryover from the Old Testament law. So, you know, I've known people who have grown up with tithing their entire life, and they've never thought twice about it because it's just something I've done all my life. Then there are people like me who come from a completely heathen background, and I get saved, and then somebody comes to me and says, well, you know, you should give God a tenth of your income. And I'm going, what the heck? (laughs) I can't survive on what I got. And you're telling me to start, you know, you've lost your senses. And that was a real faith struggle for me. But um, I'm, I'm just thankful that you guys never had to go through that. But it was simply understood as part of the practical necessity of doing the work of the ministry. In fact, we read in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, we find the apostles saying to the congregants who are wrestling with a, a financial matter, he says, the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. In other words, you know, we shouldn't go out and earn money so that we can take care of this need. We need to be supported so that we can do what we do. And in fact, we find that that's carried over in, even in Paul's teachings. Um, and we understand that this was taught in the New Testament church. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul makes this statement. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? See, Paul had a sense of humor. Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? 
Yes, this was written for us because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. You know, it's interesting. Uh, it's pretty clear what Paul is saying there. But there are those in the church today and, and have always been who basically say pastors should have outside employment and shouldn't be uh, supported by the ministry. Paul says very clearly that they should. In fact, he in 1 Timothy 5, he even says, the elders or pastors who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Um, it's interesting, the phrase worthy of double honor. Uh, somebody once told me that what that means is you should make twice as much as everybody else. And I said, I'm down with that. I'm, <laughs> amen. Uh, but I don't think that's really what is being said here. Uh, that's why the, the Amplified translators put it down. They said, adequate financial support, they say, is what's being implied. The, the New Living Translation says, should be paid well. The New English Translation has this note about it. It says, this phrase denotes both respect and remuneration, honor plus honorarium. So that, you know... Uh, when you get into conversations, well, what is the appropriate compensation? Um, I have no idea. So the whole point is that it should be appropriate, and that's why we need to leave it to elders to figure out, or the trustees to figure out what is appropriate. But the bigger question, I think, and, and probably the one you're more concerned with is, what if I don't tithe? Does, is God, do I have a curse on my life? Well, I can simply say that if you were under the Old Testament law, you probably would be, but you're not. So it's no longer something that's mandatory. Rather, tithing, if you do it, is a commitment of faith. And I, I think one would do well to consider what we talked about in this last weekend in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul says, beginning verse 6, he says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each man should give what he decides in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And he goes on to say, you will be made rich in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Uh, bottom line is, that as I have looked at this in, in terms of my own life, and that's about all I can speak to, is, you know, for the last 46, 47 years, my wife and I have simply made a practical commitment that our giving will always start at 10%. It's easy uh, to do that when you don't have a lot of money because, you know, it doesn't make that much difference. And that's why some of you may have, you create a lifestyle where you're dependent upon a certain amount of income and suddenly somebody says, well, you need to be even 10% of your income to God. And right away, sweat beads begin running down the side of your face because you're thinking, how is this going to work? How am I going to be able to survive this? Um, my, our attitude is that we tithe, but we do it not as a bill that we have to pay. Uh, nor do we see it as a way that we win God's approval or blessing. It's just something that we've decided based upon a simple concept. Everything we have is from God, and we want to show our honor and gratitude to God by giving a portion of what we have back to Him. And part of it requires a step of faith, because I have to believe that the 90% that is, I'm left with to manage my, uh, my debts and obligations is going to somehow be enough to cover what I used to use 100% for. I don't know how that works. I just know that one time, in fact, on two different occasions, Jesus sat down and told his disciples, uh, let's feed the people. And they, their response is, we don't have enough to feed the people. We've got a few fish, a few loaves. And Jesus multiplied the fish. And when they got done, they had more they brought back than they started with originally. 
we all recognize what that was, right? It's called a miracle. <laughs> and I have found in my life that by doing that, God has miraculously been there for us. And I, 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 I quite honestly, I, I look at the challenge, Malachi's challenge that he gave, and he basically said, test me and, and see if I will not pour out a blessing on you. Just test me and see if, if I won't amaze you. But I think there's something else in what Paul said that's important part of the equation here as well. He said, let every man give as he is determined in his heart. You see, in the strictest sense, we translate a tithe as 10%. But I think at the end of the day, that's somebody's arbitrary designation of what 10%. If in the beginning, a tithe was simply taking uh, the top of the heap and giving it to God... I don't think they took the bag of apples and were counting out one, two, three, four. They just simply took maybe even the best and brought it to the temple to offer it to the Lord. And that's where I think sometimes we get hung up on that uh, percentage issue. And that's where I think we often get stumbled. Because I think what we have to do is step back and say, okay, God, what is it that I'm supposed to do? Now, I said for my wife and I, giving starts at 10%. I mean, we tithe 10% of anything we make to this church. But we also give more than that. I don't want to get specific, but we, we, we give a lot of money to a lot of things. And, and the point is that that's above and beyond. And because our kids are grown and our overhead and our expenses are very low and we live pretty conservatively, we can do that. We're capable of doing it, and we discover that what Jesus said is true. It's more blessed to give than it is to always be wanting to receive. But also, I think that if you're just new to this concept and your finances are pretty upside down, I would just say, you spend time with God and figure out with Him what He wants you to do. Because God may give me faith to do something that He hasn't given you faith to do. Now, just for the record, if anybody gets concerned, I don't know what anybody gives. I never, I, I have no information on anybody's contributions or lack thereof in this church. Because for one very simple reason, Proverbs says, a bribe perverts judgment. <laughs> you know, I know me. If I knew what people gave, I would probably look at them differently. And I don't want to, I, I, I just come around and say, I, I don't want to have to deal with that. I don't want to have to think about what people give. And I don't want to start thinking that somehow the ministry is dependent upon people's contributions. Because whether people give, there are people who undoubtedly give a lot of money, and there's people who do the best they can with what they've got, and it isn't a whole lot. But that doesn't matter because Jesus honored only a few people for giving money, and they were always the people who had very little to give and gave a little tiny bit. So when the widow puts her two mites in the offering box, Jesus makes the point of saying, she has given more than those who had great treasures. So to say all of that, I hope to land just simply here with the negative 2.24 seconds I have left, is that when it comes to the New Testament, there is not a mandatory commandment to give 10% of your income. In a way, we could say, well, maybe it's the opposite because the, the first Christians gave everything. And quite honestly, I think in a short period of time, they found themselves completely destitute because like so many like people I've known over the years who give everything they have to ministry because the Lord's coming back tomorrow, and then when he doesn't, they're going, uh-oh. <laughs> it's like all those uh, 2,000K people who went down to Costco, you know, on New Year's Eve and you know, ran up their credit cards <laughs> and then tried to return it the next day because the world didn't come to an end. Um, and by the way, that's why Costco had a sign saying, anything you buy on Christmas Eve, you have to keep, <laughs> because so many people were doing it. And it's, it, it's kind of, you see people making mistakes, and I have to sit back and say, did you really pray about that? Is that what God told you to do? So that when it comes to what you give, whether to this ministry or to any ministry, or wherever it is, to the Cancer Society, God may direct you in all sorts of things, but whatever you give, let it be something that is something that you've worked out in your heart with God. That you're not doing it because somebody said, you have to give this percentage. I had someone come to me one time and saying, you know, I'm trying to get my, my life straightened out, my budget all in order, and I've been praying about it, and I felt like God told me that I, could, I should tithe 5% of my income. <clears throat> and I said, cool. 
because that was like 4% more than you'd been doing before. That's really good. That's a real step of faith. But, you know, the whole point is it's between you and God in the final analysis and shouldn't be something that somebody makes you feel guilty or bad or feel lesser than or inadequate. We just do what God does because at the end of the day, if he owns it all and it's all his, isn't it for him to decide what you should give? I mean, that just seems to make simple sense to me. And it shouldn't be coming from somebody like me saying, this is what you need to do. Um, because I think sometimes we, we're saying that based upon our own greed. And churches can be greedy just like anybody else, right? Why do you agree so quickly? <laughs> I was kind of hoping like, no, that's not... <laughs> yeah, we're all a, a, a work in progress. Anyway... Let's pray. Father God, I, I hope that what I shared tonight was clear. And I believe, Lord, it's consistent with what your word says. Um, I know this issue can become really complex, but anytime you leave the important decision to us, it gets complicated. I just pray, Lord, more than anything else, that we could get the why right in our own hearts. That we would do what we do first and foremost because we are grateful for everything that you have done, that you are doing, and that you are going to do in the future for every one of us. I, I pray, Lord, that secondly, that, that whatever we do, we do it as a way of honoring you. And that, Lord, that would put us into that place where you could bless our lives. Whether it be through material, financial, or maybe in the area that I think is most valuable in relationships. As I think about talking to my 93-year-old uh, father-in-law and how it, he's, he's working hard to give everything, all his money away before he dies. And I, he said, because uh, I don't need it. And I just thought, God, what a wonderful heart to have. Because the most valuable thing he said to me at this point in his life is those relationships. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to recognize that there indeed truly is the greater blessing in our life. Our relationship with you. Our relationship with others. I pray for wisdom and grace in this Lord in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand?